You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. I'm going to be preaching through 1 Peter. Um, every now and then, when I preach, I preach through 1 Peter, so that's what I'm doing. I'm going to dive into just reading the passage. This is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. I'm going to read it right now. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because your word remains forever. And no matter what happens, you are faithful to your promises. We thank you that you promise to be a refuge to us, to be a shelter to us, to be in a marriage like covenant with us. So that no matter what happens in our lives or on the nightly news, we may trust in you. But God, today we want to lift up. Some of the people who have suffered from events that have happened this past week, in particular, we want to lift up those who are affected by the shooting in Texas and those who are affected by the plane crash in Cuba. God, we don't know all the answers as to why you do the things you do or why you allow the things to happen that happen. But God, we want to pray for these people and intercede on these people's behalf. We want to pray that you would mobilize your church in these areas to be your hands and feet to serve those who are in need. Thank you that Jesus suffered, and as our great high priest, he can sympathize with us, he can relate to us, he knows us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So today's passage is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12, and this is how it's structured. Um, in verse 1 through 3, Peter tells us what to do. He says, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, long for spiritual milk. And then in verses 4 through 10, he tells us who we are. He tells us our identity. And then verse 11 through 12, again, Peter tells us what to do. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct honorable. And so that's that's the overall structure. He tells us what to do. He tells us who we are. And then he tells us what to do. And this sort of structure is actually quite common in a lot of the New Testament. And it's done this way to illustrate an important Christian principle. And that is this. 
What we do is determined by who we are. What we do is determined by who we are. And, you know, in most of the world, it's the opposite, right? In most of the world, who we are is determined by what we do. For example, maybe you want to be a religious person. And so you commit yourself to doing these ritualistic activities to become a religious person. Or maybe you want to be a a successful person. And so you work hard at your job, you earn degrees or whatever so that you can become a successful person. Or maybe you want to be a loving person. That's who you want to be. So you, maybe you meditate or you read books or blogs or you listen to inspirational talks or whatever. You do these things so that you can become a loving person. So that's the formula of most of the world. You do things because you want to be somebody. But in the world of Christianity, it's the opposite. God first declares you are somebody. This is who you are. This is your identity. And as a result, then he commands you to live out your identity. And so oftentimes when we read these New Testament scriptures, Peter commands us, Peter or Paul or whoever's writing, he commands us what to do. And then he reminds us of who we are, which is the foundation of what we do. And then he goes back to telling us, what to do. So today I want to focus the bulk of my time on this middle section, this verse 4 to 10 section, which describes who we are. I'm going to just read from verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter, he just finished telling us what to do, and then he's saying, as you're doing these things, I'm going to remind you You're coming to Jesus, the living stone, and you yourselves are like living stones. So Jesus is his living stone. He is rejected by men, chosen by God. That's how Peter describes Jesus. And then he says, we are like these living stones as well. We are also rejected by men, but chosen by God. You know, this concept of being chosen, that's one of the key concepts in this passage. Peter, he repeats it over and over, this idea that we are chosen. We as human beings, regardless of our backgrounds, our religious affiliations, we all have this desire to be chosen. We all want to be chosen. It starts at an, at an early age. You know, some of us, uh, maybe we were teacher's pets, okay? And being a teacher's pet essentially means you want the teacher to choose you. Others of us, we didn't care about being teacher's pets. Maybe we were classmates' pets or friends' pets or parents' pets. But regardless, the, the, the concept is we want for people to choose us. Um, as we grow older, we still, we, we, it might evolve in different ways, but we still have this desire to be chosen. We want to be chosen to be number one at a science fair, or we want to be chosen by a certain individual to be asked out to prom, or we want to be chosen at Camden Yards to, to be displayed on the Jumbotron or whatever. You know, we want to be chosen by all these different people or these different things. You know, one of my defining not chosen moments was um, I was in eighth grade and we had basketball tryouts at school and I had just uh, failed to make the basketball team for the third year in a row. Sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I could never make it. And, um, and at that point, one of my main life goals was to play in the NBA. Okay, that was one of my main life goals. I wanted to be Jeremy Lin before Jeremy Lin was around. And, um, and I remember doing the logic, if I can't even be chosen for a middle school basketball team, then it probably means I can't be chosen for a high school basketball team, which probably means I can't be chosen for a college basketball team, which probably means I won't be chosen for the NBA. And, um, 
you know, that was one of my defining, and, and, and it ripped me up because I had this innate desire. I wanted to be chosen. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be special. You know, we carry this into adulthood. As adults, we want to be chosen to be, you know, in a certain school, or we want to be chosen for a certain job. We want to be chosen to have a, a, by a certain, certain person to be a spouse. We want to be chosen uh, for a special recognition at our work or maybe for a raise. Our whole lives, we are looking to be chosen. And we think that if somebody, whether it's a basketball coach or a boss or the Camden Yards Jumbotron, if, we just think that if somebody chooses us, then we will be happy. Then we will make it. Then we'll finally have what we want. And here's the thing with how the world chooses people. The world doesn't just randomly choose people based off of luck or, or, or whatever, or chance. The world looks at the most qualified individuals and chooses those people. And in, in, in order to be qualified, you have to work for it. In order to play in the NBA, for example, I had to practice a lot. You know, and I had to probably be taller. You know, and I had to bulk up. I had to work out. So I had to do a lot of things in order to be chosen. And, and the way... Being chosen works in the world is the higher the honor, the more work it takes. The higher the honor, the more work it takes. For example, if you want to be chosen to be the president of the United States, okay, that's a very high honor, one of the highest honors ever, you need to run a multi-million dollar campaign to beat out dozens of other candidates, and all the while, half the country is hating on you in their free time, okay? So that's the work that it takes to be a presidential candidate, and it's hard work. It's a lot of sacrifice because the honor is so great. What is the greatest honor? The greatest honor of all is to be chosen by God himself. That's the greatest honor of all. And here in 1 Peter, God calls us chosen. God has chosen us. And there's a specific way in which God chooses us. God says no matter what your chosenness track record is, no matter if you were, let's say, picked last for your basketball team, no matter if you're picked last by your parents, maybe your parents loved one of your siblings more than they loved you. No matter if you're picked last as a society as a whole and you just feel like society has kicked you to the curb and you're just struggling to make it, struggling to nail down a stable job. No matter if you, if you can, you know, you're dancing your hardest or you're kissing your hardest and you can never make it onto the jumbotron, whatever. God is saying, no matter no matter what your track record of being chosen is, I choose you. And here's, listen to verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let me ask why did God choose us? What qualified us to be chosen? What did we do to earn this status? You may think, since this, is, since this is such a great honor, it might have required a lot of work. Well, I want to unpack this, this passage, verse 9 and 10, a little bit, but I want to do that by referring to the Old Testament. Sometimes when we read the New Testament, uh, it's referring to passages in the Old Testament, and I think this is doing that right here. So there's two passages in particular I want to read. One is in Deuteronomy 7. And this has to do with the concept of being a chosen race, of being a people of God's own possession. This is Deuteronomy 7. I'm going to read from 
verse 6, and this is God talking to the nation of Israel. He's saying, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's same similar language, right? Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And why? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Israel? It was not because they were more populous than any other nation. It wasn't because they were stronger or more advanced technologically. Or It was because God loved them. That's it. So keep that in mind. We're going to read um, another passage. But first I'm going to read, read, reread 1 Peter 2.10. 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a reference to the story of Hosea. Hosea is a book in the Old Testament. It's a pretty strange story. God tells this man named Hosea, who's a prophet, to marry a prostitute. Okay, and so Hosea, so sometimes people think the Bible is rated G. It's not rated G sometimes. Okay, so Hosea goes and marries this prostitute named Gomer. And and this was intended to physically illustrate, to demonstrate God's love for the people of Israel. So much so that he's saying, just as Hosea is marrying this woman who's going around and not being faithful. God, is ha- God has this relationship with the nation of Israel. He is faithful to us, even though we are not faithful to him, even though we're rejecting him and pursuing other things. And then Gomer, Gomer has some children, and God commands Hosea, name their kids, name your kids, no mercy, that's a name, okay? No mercy and not my people. Those are the names of the kids. No mercy and not my people. And then, and then why, why is God, you might be wondering, why is God asking Gomer to name uh, uh, these kids, no mercy, not my people. Well, because Israel had been unfaithful. They had rejected this chosen status that God had given them to be his chosen people, his people of his own possession. And God was declaring he would no longer extend mercy and, and Israel would no longer be his people. So fast forward a little bit. I'm summarizing a little bit. But in Hosea 2, God is saying that one day I will make a new covenant and I will betroth the people to, to him forever. I will betroth the people to him forever. And then he says something extraordinary in Hosea 2, 23. He says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. And so God is saying, One day, one day, I'm going to come back to Israel and I'm going to declare to Israel, You who I have withheld mercy from, I will once again Give mercy too. And you who have rejected me as your God, I will once again say to you, you are my people. And so therefore, we go back to this First Peter 2 passage when Peter is saying, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have received mercy. Peter is saying that this new covenant that God was talking about with the nation of Israel and Hosea is now here. God has given that new covenant to us. And God is saying, we are his new chosen people. And we are betrothed to him forever. And why? It's not because we're more numerous, not because we are stronger, not because we are any brighter, not because we're more moral, not because we're more hardworking, not because we're more faithful. We are just like Gomer. It is solely because God loves us. That's it. We didn't earn it or deserve it. 
God chose us because he loves us. God is a God who leaves the, leaves the 99 sheep and goes and searches out and finds that one lost sheep who didn't even earn to be a part of the flock, didn't deserve to be a part of the flock. The irony of the gospel is that the one thing that we want above all else is the one thing we cannot earn. The one thing we want above all else to be chosen by God is the one thing we cannot earn. It's simply given to us by grace. It's a simple truth, but it has revolutionary implications. And all the time I hear people say stuff in church context, things like, you know what, I can't go to church this week because I did a lot of messed up things this week. Or maybe some people, they might say later we're going to do communion. They might say something like, I can't take communion. I don't feel right taking communion because I'm not doing well with God. Or they might say something like, I want to pray. I want to ask God for this thing, but, you know, I haven't been doing well. I haven't, I haven't prayed in such a long time. How can I pray and ask God for this thing when I don't even know God very well? And all of this sort of language, all of this sort of thinking is assuming that just because the world chooses people based off their merits, that God chooses people based off their merits too. We're assuming that, that just because the world chooses people based off of this pedigree and this criteria and this qualification, that God does the same exact thing. But God doesn't. This is what God does. God chooses people because of his grace. God chooses people because of his grace. The world says, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then I will choose you. But God says, you have failed in doing all these things, but I will still choose you because I love you. Um, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, there were two thieves uh, crucified next to him, one on his left and one on his right. And imagine this, you know, the one, one was mocking him, the other one was uh, recognized who he was and wanted to go to heaven, wanted to be saved. But imagine if that one, that man said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, look at all the great things I've done in my life. But he didn't say that. What did he say? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And all of us are in the same exact boat. Nobody, no matter who they are, what qualifications have, have the right to say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, look at my life. Look at my track record. Look at all these great things I've done. Because if that's all we got, we won't make it. We would never be chosen. If it was about our merits, we are just like the thief on the cross. We won't stand a chance. The only way we stand a chance is if God saved us through grace. If God chose us through grace. Because if it was about God's grace, then we know we are welcome. So all we can say to Jesus is, remember me. I know I don't deserve it. I know I've messed up. But I'd like for you to remember me. All of our lives, we're trying to be chosen by all these different people, organizations, these groups. But deep down inside, I want to suggest, regardless of whether you, you believe it or not, what we all want is to be chosen by God. That's what we all want deep down inside. And that is the one thing that God wants to give you freely. The greatest honor is given out with the greatest grace. For every other honor, you need to work to be chosen. But in the kingdom of God, God gives it to you freely. And this is human nature, right? You know, when we are, um, when we're chosen to have a certain honor, um, it's, and it's an honor that we didn't expect, 
we feel the urgency to rise to the occasion. You know, if we, think, we just think outside the terms of Christianity, out of, outside of faith for a while. Let's, let's say, let's say you, you're not married, okay? And let's say you ask a girl out. And let's say this girl is totally out of your league. And you knew that going into it. And you just, you've been watching her for a while. And you're like, I was a little bit like that. I don't know if you know our story. Uh, my wife, she was a senior in college. I was a junior in college. She was about to graduate. And it was like right before, it was the day before her last final. And so I was sort of like, if I don't ask her out now, I don't know if I'll ever get the chance. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it, okay? And so I don't know, maybe, maybe you relate to that. But anyways, let's say, let's say that's, that's what happens. You go for this girl, you ask her out, and she, even though you know she's way out of your league, and then she says yes, okay? What do you do when she says yes? Okay, and then let's say you, go, you plan a date. Are you gonna be late on your first date? No. No, because you, you're, you got this amazing honor, this amazing privilege of going out with this girl you really wanted. And so what, you, what will you do? You'll rise to the occasion. You're going to say, you know what? I don't, I don't think I'm that good of a person. I don't, I don't think I'm the person she deserves, maybe, you know. I feel like a scrub, but I'm going to try my hardest to be the person she wants. Right? I'm going to try my hardest to be the person you want, even though you feel unqualified. You're going to try your hardest. Or let's say, you know, you're applying for a job. Okay, and let's say you look at the job qualifications, okay, and you don't meet the job qualifications, but you're, you know what? You're desperate. You apply for this job anyways. And then, lo and behold, you get the job. Okay, are you going to be late your first day of work? No. You're going to rise to the occasion, right? You just got this amazing honor of working this nice, well-paying job. You're not going to take it for granted. You're going to work your butt off you know, in order to, 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 to be the person who they think you are, right? And I would say in the same way, Christianity should be a little bit like that. Before we are saved, before we come to God, we're broken, we're sinful. And then when we find out that God intervenes into your life and he chooses you, he saves you by grace, he declares you a saint, he declares you a child of God, he declares you a citizen of his kingdom, what will you do? You're going to feel this urgency. Oh, that's who I am? My whole life, I thought this was who I was. I thought I was a broken, sinful, pitiful, rejected by the world person. But this is who I am. What are you going to do? You're going to rise to the occasion. Not because you earned it. Not because, not because you deserved it. But because you're responding to who God says you are. Being chosen by God has this huge magnitude. It has this huge effect of, of God saying, this is who you are. And then as a result, you're going to say, oh, this is why now I realize my potential. Not because I did anything amazing, but because God has declared that I am his. And so as a result, our lives change. How do our lives change? I want to suggest two things that are here in this passage. The first way our lives change is there will be holy living. Holy living. Verse 11, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then verse 11, behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. The world is filled with all these things that wage war against our souls. And then by default, outside of God, we have this mentality of being, way, I mean, these things in the world, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, Envy, slander, passions of the flesh. This is just normal, okay? And we just live in this stuff. We immerse ourselves in this stuff, and this is normal to us. This is our default condition, and they are constantly waging war against our souls, but, but that's just who we are, and it's so a part of us that we can't tell the difference. But when we recognize 
that we are in fact sojourners and exiles in this world. We're not part of this world. We're totally different. We're just meandering around temporarily in this world when we recognize that. And in fact, we recognize we are actually God's chosen possession, then everything changes. We are no longer striving after these sins that wage war against our souls, but we are striving after God, and God is waging war for our souls. Sometimes, you know, I feel beaten down by sin. I don't know if you ever feel like that. You feel beaten down by sin. I feel stuck in who I am, and I feel feel this mentality of I can't win. And during those times, you know, I'm stuck in this cycle of self-condemnation and defeat. During those moments, how do I break free? How do you break free when you're in those stances? You break free by remembering who you are. By remembering who you are. And this is who you are. You have been chosen by God, and God is waging war over your soul. And knowing that God has already won the war will help you win your little battles. It's by remembering who you are that you can live these holy lives. And secondly, that's holy lives. Secondly, there's an outward proclamation. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have all these identities. And why? What for, for what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, have called you, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so... There's an outward mentality, an outward proclamation to this. We are who we are. We do the good deeds that we do so that we can proclaim who God is to those around us so that they may see and they may glorify God also. That's the hope. We do church not just for church's sake. We do church also for the sake of those outside of the church. There is a deliberate outward focus in our identity to try to reach and serve those who don't yet know God so that one day, hopefully, they will know God. Our church's mission, I don't know if you know, is transforming lives, transforming communities. And uh, so there's two components that are going on. First, we encounter God and God transforms our lives. We experience new identities. We have this, uh, this gradually becoming and manifesting what it's like to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're becoming more and more like who God has declared us to be. That's this transformation. But it doesn't just stop there. It also goes and trickles out into our communities. That's the second component. And so God has strategically placed us in these communities. And these are secular communities. I'm talking about places like our workplace, our campus, if we're students, our neighborhood, our family, a club that we go to, our library that we go to, a grocery store that we go to, a coffee shop we go to. These are all communities that the world has set up. And as we live out our lives, we are spending time in these communities. And God is saying, as we live our lives there, we are slowly transforming those places as well. How? By proclaiming who God is, by doing good deeds so that they may glorify God as well. And how do we do that? We do that by remembering who we are. We're not, we're not citizens of this world. We're sojourners and exiles in this world, and our home is in heaven. Our allegiance is to God. And by remembering who we are, by remembering we have been chosen by God, this mission, 
our lives being transformed, our communities being transformed, will start to take place. But inevitably, you know, maybe you experience this too, sometimes you hit dead ends, you struggle, you try to live holy lives, or you try to transform the communities around you, and you just, you feel like you're making little to no progress. You know, as this verse says above, you know, there are people speaking against us. We might experience things like rejection and isolation and criticism, and living the holy life is not easy. You're, I mean, you you don't fit in when you live holy lives and when you live as a sojourner or as an exile. That's why in a country today, people who are sojourners and exiles, they automatically don't seem like they are part of the country. If they're from another country, if they have an accent or they look a certain way, a lot of people, they just assume, oh, they're not from here and they think of them differently. And that's how we are in our world today. Living as these holy people, as God's chosen people, sometimes... We just feel like we can't live up to that standard. It's too hard. And when it feels hard, remember Jesus. This is verse 6 through 8. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here, this is a little bit cryptic. I'm going to try to unpack this to the best of my ability. Here, Peter, he quotes three Old Testament passages. And he's doing so with this interesting metaphor. And this metaphor he's talking about is, he's saying, Jesus was like a stone, okay? And some builders came and they wanted to build a house. And specifically, they're building God's temple, And so they're collecting stones to build God's temple, and they look at Jesus, the stone, and they reject him. They say, Jesus, you're not suitable for this temple we're trying to build. So they build the temple with other stones. And then God, in a dramatic turning of events, he he raises Jesus from the dead and establishes him as the head of the church. And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone for my new temple. And this new temple is the church, the people of God. So that's this metaphor. Jesus, once the stone that was rejected, is now the cornerstone or the centerpiece, the focal point, the foundation of this new temple. Now Peter says there are two possible responses to this. Either you believe or you reject. The first possible response is you believe. You believe that Jesus has saved you and you say, I want to be a part of your new temple. And then he's saying, now you are invited to be stones in this temple. You will get the honor of being a part of Jesus' temple. And the second possible response is to disobey and to be offended by Jesus and and to say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of your temple. I'm going to keep building my own temple. You know, you may wonder, why, why would someone choose to build their own temple? Well, think about it like this. If you have a track record of being awesome, okay, and of being chosen by the world, of having all these pedigrees, of not feeling rejection, why would you want to identify with this man, Jesus, who has been rejected by the world? You feel satisfied, you feel content, you feel established, you feel good. You already have this temple, you're making great progress on, the, on this temple. This, this message that Jesus is proclaiming, that anybody, regardless of their status, regardless of their, 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 what they've done in life, regardless of their prerequisites, they're invited to be a part of this temple. Why would you be a part of that? Why would you want to be a part of that? That would be offensive to you, right? 
Because Jesus is this great equalizer. He's saying, near or far, holy or not holy, regardless of who you are, you're welcome. You're welcome in my temple, in my church. And so when you see that, and if you feel like, I'm doing really well. All these people are praising me. All these people are choosing me. I'm doing all these amazing things. That message will be a stumbling block to you. And you'll say, Jesus, I'm doing pretty good building my own temple. I'm going to build my temple without you. But to those who have been rejected by the world, God says, I choose you. And therefore, the church should not be a community of people that has their noses in the air and looks down on everyone else. We are, as one of my favorite bands, Switchfoot says in the song Beautiful Letdown, we are the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. That's who we are. And that's the people who God has chosen to be a part of his temple. And the only thing that keeps us together, how could such a temple stand? The only thing that keeps us together is the fact that Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is our cornerstone. That's why we stick it out together. That's why even though we bring our baggage, we're clueless, we're lost, we're confused, we offend one another, we hurt one another, we have Jesus. And that's what brings us together. Jesus was our great high priest. He volunteered to intercede on behalf of the human race by becoming a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus didn't just do some good deeds here and there. He actually chose to be the sacrifice for our sins. And not only that, he chose to become an outsider. He chose to be rejected by the world, by the religious leaders of the day, so that we on the outside may be brought inside. Jesus became an outsider so that we might be brought inside. Jesus left the dwelling place of God so that we might be brought into the dwelling place of God. Jesus was rejected by men that we might be chosen by God. And so when we are rejected by those in the world, when we live out our lives, our callings, trying to be holy, trying to proclaim God's excellencies, trying to transform communities, and when we go through opposition, criticism, rejection, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus understands because he was rejected too. We can take comfort in the fact that we were never chosen because of our merits. We were never chosen based off how holy we were or how good at proclaiming we were, how good at being transformed we were. We were chosen because of Jesus' merits. Grace is free, but it came at the cost of Jesus' blood. Because at the end of the day, there had to be a cornerstone, and that was Jesus. Jesus Christ alone is a cornerstone, and though we may fail, Jesus will not fail. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your reckless love, this overwhelming love that has saved us, that even though we didn't deserve it, you chose to dwell among us, to reside and to suffer with us and to die on the cross for our sins. And when you, di when you did, the curtain in front of the temple tore open and you welcomed us in. God, there's some of us here in this room, we come to you with a lot of baggage, and that baggage has been holding us back from really experiencing you. We've had all these thoughts of, God, you can't choose me. I can't be your child. I, ha I can't do this or that because of this and this and this and all of my history and all of my 
pain and all of my sins and these things that have been holding my, me down, whether it's things people have done to me or things I've done to myself, God. And, and I just feel so guilty. Thank you that Jesus' blood washes our sins away. Thank you that God has chosen us, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. God, I pray that we would live holy lives and that we would take this calling seriously to proclaim you to our neighbors and friends and even strangers, God. Even though it scares us to death, not because we want to do something, not because we want to earn anything, but just out of just love and gratitude, just in response of what you've done for us. I pray that this gospel message, Jesus becoming a man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, calling us home, will define our lives so that what we do will be determined by who we are. And who we are is we're a child of God, a citizen of heaven, and you love us. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.